This is the second Sunday in Lent, and so I thought I'd just introduce it by saying last week we talked about the location of where the spiritual, emotional, and mental work needs to be done uh, as we move through this season, at least through one particular screen, which I like, Father Thomas Keating, and he says that the three energy centers where we, we need to do most of this work are the issues of security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And all of those are the places where we locate uh, what we want to do to get back in balance. I suppose that's the best way to say that. This week, we uh, continue to have pop up uh, aspects of the three major themes of Lent, repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives. And we add to that this week the importance of covenant or relationship with God, both understood in terms of what we read in Genesis that I'm going to preach about, God's covenant with Abram, and then in the gospel, we have an image of uh, the God who is faithful and never runs, and how we understand that uh, in terms of a, of a Lenten theme. So let me just remind you about something that uh, is important. Throughout the Lenten season, we're going to read readings from the Hebrew Bible, principally, that may pop up again, uh, both in Holy Week and also in the great 50 days of Easter. And the purpose for that is to remind us all that uh, we're living in something Christian people call the history of salvation. And in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian scriptures, we have a rehearsal of God's abiding presence to God's people. This is one of the readings today from Genesis that may not come up again, but is establishing that idea of the history of salvation. And we have discovered as Christian people who believe that in Jesus' words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God, that we have been provided a template for how to live our own life, and we've learned that the history of salvation as it is recorded for the people of God also is part of understanding that our personal history is part of the history of salvation. And that each one of you has a role to play in big and small ways in God's plan for the cosmos. So I've been recently saying in practically every sermon, don't think about that in heroic terms only, but that the, through the ordinary and the commonplace, you participate in God's plan. So today we're going to learn something about the intensity of the relationship between God and God's people, and we're going to learn about an image of the Savior as a nurturer that is a very powerful image uh, in the New Testament and certainly in Luke's Gospel. So, Genesis. <clears throat> Abram. Uh, I've said the Hebrew Bible is full of word plays and puns. So when you read it in the original language, there's all kinds of ahas and, you know, teehees in the Hebrew Bible. Today we go from Abram to Abraham. 
Abram means exalted father in Hebrew, and Abraham means father of a multitude. So when you read it in the text, it, you see, oh, you know, they all go, oh, like this. You know. It's like when, this is going to follow on this, Sarah, Sarai, um, is called on. Remember, Abraham is called on by three angels, as it turns out. Three people show up where he's camped, and Abraham extends Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern hospitality to these people, and they tell him, and Sarai, or Sarah, that uh, she's going to have a baby. And she says, I'm 75 years old. <laughs> she laughs. It says in the text. And of course, one of the three angels looks at her and says, why are you laughing? So, she tells him. They disappear. She has a baby. And she and uh, she names him Isaac. And Isaac in Hebrew means God laughed. So when you read it in the original text, they all go, oh. That's where he got the name. Abram is uh, out there in the middle of nowhere where in the land of the Chaldees, he was a Chaldean. And you know, the Chaldean language is sort of a precursor to Hebrew. And my uh, Old Testament professor in seminary, Joseph Hunt, uh, knew how to read and write Chaldee. So when he would sort of get into a, on a jag in the class, he would turn around and start and write this on the blackboard. He'd write on like three or four sentences in Chaldee. Now here we are, first year seminarians who don't know, you know, a delf from what? He's writing all this stuff, and then he turns to the class and says, Of course, I believe that this is a folk etymology. <laughs> and we all said, Father Hunt, if you think it's a folk, we right with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't even getting 10% of this, right? But he knew all that language, you know, the little tri that they used to nick into clay tablets, you know, Sumeric and all that stuff. He learned, he knew all that, 18 of them. And uh, it was quite a tour de force in terms of knowledge. But he taught me a great lesson because I was fascinated by this as a young man and he never set, he never traded on that knowledge. And he was a lovely priest, a wonderful counselor. And it was an example of somebody who was in academic life uh, who didn't behave uh, as some are wont in that part of uh, the church's character. Abram is there with God and they strike up a covenant. The people who study this in the ancient archaeology know that the people who put Genesis together uh, obviously were students of the cult of how this was done that followed along in the sacrificial system that would become part of Judaism. So that's why you have all the meticulous description in the reading today about how to cut these animals in half and how you lay them one against the other, but you don't cut the birds in half. And you do this in the pot and all that stuff goes. That's all about how this, how this is. So that subsequent generations would read this and say, well, you see from the beginning, 
they were doing this the, they were doing this the right way according to the way we do it now so it must be it must be true but the issue here is that God makes a covenant with Abraham and what scholars know about this is that in the ancient Near East, this covenant was not one that was just between a sovereign God who could do whatever he wanted to do, but it was reciprocal. And that meant that breaking the covenant had, con had consequences for both sides. Now we receive biblical support for this in Lent when we read on, in a on Ash Wednesday the reading from Joel. And in the reading from Joel, it says that uh, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. God can change God's mind. This flies in the face of a view that a lot of people have, a certain species of Christian these days, who believe so firmly in God's sovereignty that they're not willing to see that on more than one occasion in the biblical witness, uh, God doesn't do what the predictable thing is that God might do. That in fact, when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy always trumps God's judgment. And Abram kind of, you know, uh, in the beginning, he had this very Jewish dialogue with God. The beginning he says, how come you're going to be a father? I don't even have any children of my own. I have one child from a slave woman. And he said, he's not going to be the one who's going to be the, your inheritor. You're going to be the father of a multitude. And this is my promise to you. And Abraham now agrees Paul will take this theme up in Romans and refer to this passage and say, through Abraham's faith, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And this imputed righteousness that Abraham received is, in our theology, what you all receive through your faith. Which is trust. Abraham would have used the word immuna, which means trustfulness. It's a pretty tough thing to say in our age. Nobody trusts anybody, do they? You know? So we have to keep putting it out there at the group level that it's important to trust people. And that Abraham trusted in God and received benefits even though he didn't know where he was going to go or what he was going to do. The other thing about this reading is why it's important for Lent is that it's an example of how God is not a cutter and a runner. God always remains faithful. He always keeps his side of the bargain. The biblical witness says that that is so. He does not turn his back on you. So in the midst of, say, a serious self-examination and reflection about the three energy centers, which can often be painful and difficult, that God is always present with you in that process. And that's cause for celebration. In the reading from Luke, we have Jesus going to Jerusalem. He makes a decision in the, in the you know, quest for the historical Jesus stuff and all of the, the um, writing that's been done about that in the last many years. Uh, one of the things that it becomes clear is that in the Gospels, 
in, in the Synoptic Gospels particularly, Jesus uh, has a strategy that he tries, you know, sending out 70 people and going out and, you know, uh, preaching the message that he has, has uh, delivered to his disciples and the apostles, and it's a bust. It didn't work very well. And so he makes a decision that he needs to go to Jerusalem. And so in, he goes to Jerusalem. And he realizes that he's going to have to confront the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And this is potentially very life-threatening. And so he intends to go and to do this, and he ends up there. And so today, he speaks about Jerusalem and speaks about the, the city uh, as a place filled with very self-satisfied inhabitants. They feel a certain religious superiority. They feel a certain superiority because of, they, of their chosenness and their specialness. And it's very hard for them to see that they might need to repent, that, that they might need to change the direction that where they're looking for happiness. This doesn't absolutely relate to it, but I have to say something to you about this. I, uh, in the, la the, the, the issue before just the present one, in uh, the New York Review of Books, there is an article about the origin of Facebook. And it is also a discussion of these social networking sites and a discussion of uh, generation Y, I guess, maybe X, but Y. And one of the things that the article describes is, you know, those of you who <coughs> Facebook's uh, origins were from Harvard University. And it was originally a networking device that was used for Harvard students only. And so the question, the elitist uh, uh, origins of Facebook are something that the, the writer uh, wishes to discuss. And the debate that went on within the Facebook people, first of all, it might be interesting, some of you may know this, the guy who founded Facebook stole the idea from somebody else and had to pay $85 million in a settlement outside of court in order to get himself uh, extricated from this difficulty. Uh, the, the Facebook people decided, well, could, because they discovered it was happening anyway, that the uh, people from the outside, like Princeton, uh, were actually breaking in their network, you know, they were, the thing began to grow like Topsy. So there was a big debate about whether or not what other schools could be allowed into this. Well, yeah, Princeton, Yale, yeah, I am, or, you know, you could do Stanford, yeah, we do that. But what about a state college? Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Now you, now you had MySpace, which is catered to a different economic stratum before Rupert Murdoch bought it, you know, because of the commercial value of MySpace. But in 2009, about November, uh, Facebook eclipsed MySpace in terms of the number of subscribers <coughs> or people who've been friended on this. So what this article talked about was a general feeling 
of invincibility and superiority on a part, particularly generationally, of the people who use this. Now it's being used by all ages, including my age uh, and so forth, and some of us are making the same mistakes. What person in their right mind would send to their group of friends naked pictures of you drunk and in flagrante delecto thinking that this would never get to anybody else. <laughs> what kind of loony thinking is operating, right? You know? But it's a belief in a certain kind of trust. <laughs> right? Honest Pete, you know? So I got to thinking about this as I was writing the sermon and also to, about the PBS NewsHour where they had a guy from the Pew Research people and some other people on there talking about some studies that have been made recently about economic life and so on. And one of the conclusions is that, that, that it came to was that Generation Y so Generation Y, depending on who you talk to, would begin, say, 1981, or maybe even up to 2000, which are the millennial generation, uh, are the ones who are the most technologically apt. So this has been the group that has most easily been able to embrace all of this sort of thing. And one of the things that they've discovered is, is that, by and large, Generation Y is ex has an extremely uh, high self-esteem as a generation, you know? They really think very highly of themselves. Uh, their parents, no doubt, believed that it was important to instill in their children high self-esteem because God knows in their own family of origin issues, they have marched from one horror to the next. So we're not going to allow that to happen, are we? And so now we got a lot of people who think more of themselves than they should, and they haven't done anything yet. <laughs> Do you think Father Brewer might be grinding an axe? <laughs> you know? Anyhow. <laughs> this may have something to do with the people in Jerusalem back in, you know, 30 AD who thought of themselves in the terms of the uh, ancient Near East as being the absolute ne plus ultra with regard to how they understood everything and how they ought to behave. And Jesus weeps over them. He has the gift of tears. And he said, how often I wished that I could be like a mother hen a very feminine image, uh, putting her wings over her chicks to protect you from uh, what is to come and to shield you from your overweening sense of self. And here's why this is a powerful image. Uh, people who've, who've uh, been present at barnyard fires, which happens on farms sometimes, have uh, written, uh, made written de descriptions of uh, clearing the, the smoke, the, the fire ends, and they'll come upon a hen with her wings spread like this, burnt up. 
And when they move the, the body, the chicks all run away alive. They've all been saved. And Luke is writing his gospel in about 85. And in 70 AD, the Romans burnt down the temple in Jerusalem. They burned up the city up, destroyed it. And so the audience that read Luke's gospel uh, knew that that had happened and it appeared to them to be an absolute collapse. <coughs> and Luke's point is saying that uh, those people who followed Jesus and who understood his message and understood their responsibility in some way to communicate their best place of safety and assurance uh, understood that God's nature is to protect and to shield. And that it is a good thing in the midst of all of the uh, difficulties and the adversities that human beings face. Now we've talked about the reciprocal nature of covenant and what that means is, is that we don't just receive this unconditional love, which we, we get, unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. It calls in the human heart uh, uh, for a response to this divine initiative. And the season of Lent has something to do with figuring out the nature of that response within the uh, challenges and the opportunities each of us face on a daily basis. So I, when I said earlier, don't be too hung up on the need for doing this in heroic terms, but to know that somehow uh, being shielded by God and knowing that God never runs uh, could give you a certain confidence in being able to use whatever talents and abilities you have to help somebody or to be there for them when it's an important thing for you to do. So this gospel is about that idea that um, being a little too puffed up can have its downside, but also knowing that God's steadfastness is there to help you even when you go overboard is comforting. So this week, think about um, the covenant that I talk about all the time that we have now. The one that we find operative as Christian people is the baptismal covenant. And in our prayer book, it's there, and you can read it, and you can ask yourself how you're doing. And that's sort of the operating template that we use about living the Christian faith and life. And think about the fact that God always keeps God's end of the covenant, and that we have to discover how to be more faithful on a regular basis. And know also that God never runs, and God is always faithful. Amen. Amen.